Now, as we continue on in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we are in an area that the other synoptic Gospels have already covered, actually. Matthew and Mark had most of what we have here. However, this first incident is rather peculiar to the Gospel of Luke. That is, we're going to do a little fishing, and we have a fish story here. This is in chapter 5, verse 1, and I'm reading, "...it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, that is, by the sea of Galilee. And he saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Note the fishermen here were washing their nets. And you just hold on to that for just a moment, by the way. And then he said to Simon, here he says he was in his boat, push out a little from the land, and believe me, what a pulpit he had. And I think it's both figurative and suggestive. Every pulpit is a fishing boat. And many of us should spend time in a fishing boat. That is, of getting the Word of God out and attempting to catch fish. He's told these men, I'll make you fishers of men. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have fish every time, because these men didn't. But it does mean that the one on board must not forget the supreme business of life, and that is to fish for the souls of men. Now, he'd called them here beforehand to fish for men, and they had left and returned to fishing for fish, by the way, because notice... And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. Now he taught the people out of the ship. But after he'd finished, then he said, Now let's put out and do some fishing. And he says to them, We want now to leave all fishing for men, and we're going to fish for fish. And Matthew and Mark both tell us that the first time he called them, he walked by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea. They were fishers, and our Lord said unto them, Follow me, and also Simon Peter. And here, why, these men have returned back to fishing. I've said this before, and I want to repeat it again. Evidently, there were three calls that he made to them. He met them, that is, most of them, in Jerusalem. And John tells us about that in the first chapter of John. When John the Baptist marked him out, several of the disciples of John followed him. And they wanted to know where he dwelt. Philip was there, Nathaniel was there, and Peter was there, and Andrew was there. But he never called them at that time, just met them. Then later on, he passed by the Sea of Galilee, saw them fishing, called them. They left their nets. They followed him. But they returned back to the fishing business. And we're going to find out later on, Dr. Luke will tell us, they were called again to go fishing. And he made them apostles at that time. But now here, they returned back to fishing. And I think they're all a little embarrassed because he's used their boat. 
Simon was perfectly willing for him to do it. And he's taught from the boat. And as he taught from the boat, Simon Peter was sitting there listening. Now our Lord says to him, says, Launch out now into the deep and let down your net. I'm going to fish with you. You quit fishing with me, so I'm going to fish with you. And Simon Peter, he couldn't help but say this. Simon answering said unto him, Master, we've toiled all night and we've taken nothing. Then notice, nevertheless, at thy word, I let down the net. And Simon Peter rebukes Christ. You see, these men were expert fishermen, and they thought they knew all about the Sea of Galilee, and they did. And he makes it very clear, says, we fished all night, we didn't get a thing. Stories told that Wellington one time gave a command to one of his generals, and he answered that it was impossible to execute the command. And Wellington told him that, he said, you go ahead, because I don't give impossible commands. The Lord Jesus, when he commands something, why, you don't need to stop and rebuke him and say, look, that can't be done. We've tried this before. If he says it, it can be done because he gives no impossible commands. Now, will you notice verse 6 here? And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. Now, fishing must be done according to his directions. Now, later on, when we get to John, I'm going to talk about this matter of the way our Lord used the business of fishing to illustrate what a believer today is to do. And there are many lessons here. There's the method of fishing. It's an art. You must go where the fish are. You must use the right kind of bait. And you must be patient. But only this lesson. It's necessary if we're going to do any fishing. We must fish according to his instructions. I can't overemphasize that. If we're ever today to do anything, we must fish according to his instructions. Now, the net broke. And later on, we'll find that a net does not break. And at that time in John, I'll explain why I believe the net broke here when it was overloaded and it didn't break in the other place. You see, up to this point, there's no net really that can hold the fish for the very simple reason he has not yet died, rose again. That's the gospel. And the gospel net that will hold fish must be one that rests on the death and resurrection of Christ. Up to this time, there'd been no death and resurrection. The net broke. Later on, after he died and met these men who'd gone fishing, and he told them how to fish, the net didn't break because now he tells them to go out and preach this gospel to the very ends of the earth. Notice the size of the catch, by the way, verse 7. And they beckoned unto their partners which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. This is a tremendous catch, if you please. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, the important thing to note here, and I want to change the wording here just a little. Peter confessed his failure that he wasn't even a good fisherman of fish. 
and that it was due to lack of faith. But what he's saying is simply this. He's saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What he's saying is, Lord, you called me, and I failed. I went back to fishing for fish. And I thought I knew that better, and I found out I didn't. And depart from me. Why don't you go on and let me alone? I'm a sinful man, and get somebody you can depend on. That's what he's saying. And our Lord makes it very clear that he didn't intend to get rid of Simon Peter at all. He was going to use him. And the same thing will apply to you. All you and I have to do is just recognize that we're not very good fishermen, recognize our failure and our faithlessness. Then we can come to him. And when we're willing to do that, you know, he won't put us out of the fishing business, and he won't throw us overboard, and he'll continue to use us. That's a wonderful truth. Now notice, for he was astonished and all that were with him at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch man. And by the way, he did pretty good on the day of Pentecost, don't you think? I think the answer of our Lord is certainly significant here. He'll no longer catch dead fish, but live man. And there's something here that is revealing, by the way, and it's revealed in the fact they couldn't catch fish. We find that they had failed, and also our Lord was able to catch them. And there's a lesson here, and the lesson is that there's another fisherman. Did you know Satan is a fisherman? Paul said that in 2 Timothy 2.26 when he said, "...and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will." Satan's a fisherman also. He's got his hook out there in the water today. And God's fishing for your soul, and Satan's fishing for your soul, and Satan has his hook baited. He has the things of the world on it. And God has his hook out too, and that hook is a cross. And on it, the Son of God died for you. That's the message he has for you. By the way, who caught you? Whose hook are you on today? You're on one or the other. Either the devil has you, or God has you. There's no third fisherman out there, by the way. Now let me move on. We have here the healing of the leper. And this healing of the leper, we saw it both in Matthew and Mark. And it came to pass, and I'm reading verse 12, came to pass when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, Thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. That's all I want to lift out here. Luke is a good doctor, by the way. He must have been outstanding. And he saw something that apparently was not recognized in that day, a certain psychological effect. And you know that this poor leper, the day that Leprosy was discovered in his body. I don't know how it happened. Could have happened like this. Maybe one day he came in from 
plowing. And he said to his wife, I got a little sore here in the palm of my hand. It bothers me when I'm plowing. Could you put a little poultice on it? Could you wrap it up? And she did. And the next day it wasn't better. It was worse. And after a few days, they were a little alarmed. She said, you better go to the priest. He went to the priest, and the priest put him up. And in 14 days, he was brought out, and they looked at it. And the priest said, I think it's leprosy. In fact, it is leprosy. It's spread up your arm now. And the man says, let me go tell my wife and children goodbye. The priest said, you can't tell them goodbye. You'll never be able to take your lovely wife in your arms again. And you'll never be able to put your arms around those precious children of yours. And the man went off, and they'd bring him food, and they'd withdraw when they'd put it down in a certain place. And he'd come up and get it. He'd look in the distance, and he'd see that lovely wife, and he'd see those children. He could see them growing up. And then one day, the Lord Jesus came by, and he not only healed him, he came to him and said, If you will, you could heal me. And our Lord said, I will. He's the king. That's the way Matthew tells it. And Luke says, I will be thou clean. But you notice how he did it? He put forth his hand and touched him. Nobody touched that poor fellow for years. Can you imagine what it meant to have the touch of this hand upon him? May I say to you, and I say it very literally, as the Lord Jesus touched your life, there's so many lives today that need to be touched. And maybe it'll have to be your hand, by the way. It'll have to be something you do. And I'm confident all of you can reach somebody. I don't know who it is. But after all, you know, he said we're to do a little fishing. And also, we need to reach out our hand and touch some soul that only you could touch. No one else could touch them. Then we have the story here of the paralytic in Capernaum that was healed. And it came to pass, verse 17, on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And this is when they let this man down through the roof. Mark tells us that and Matthew tells us that. Mark has the longest story of anyone on it. And he gives the briefest gospel. And you remember I elaborated on it there, and I won't hear. But another wonderful miracle of our Lord. And he healed this man. And he healed him because these four men brought him into his presence where they could get him where the poor fellow could hear, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And it was a wonderful, wonderful word that came to this man. A lot of people today, friends, are not going to get the message unless you're just going to have to get at the corner of a stretcher because these people are paralyzed today, paralyzed by sin, paralyzed by so many other things that this world holds for them. Some of them are paralyzed by prejudice. and Some are paralyzed by indifference. And they're never going to hear Jesus say to them, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee unless you get at the corner of a stretcher. And bring them. You see, all these incidents here reveal the fact the Lord Jesus is trying to get over to us that we're to get this message out today. That's the reason we're on radio. We want to get the Word out today. Hope you'll stand at the corner of a stretcher with us because, you know, one man can't carry a stretcher. 
You've got to have four men at least. And I can use a few more men on this stretcher of getting a word out today. That's our business, friends. We need to get the Word of God out. I'm not promoting anything. I'm not running an orphan's home for stray cats up in the Aleutian Islands. Don't send me any money for the stray cats because I'm not doing that. But if you want to help with radio, that's a different thing. We're trying to get the Word of God out by radio. That's our business. That's the way I interpret our business. By the way, that's our business. Nothing else is our business. Now, that's this incident. Then you have the record of the call of Matthew here in verse 27. And after these things, he went forth, saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. Now, Matthew gives us that much of his own call. Mark gives us a little bit more. But here we have something else. And Levi made a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with him. And here is another way of trying to win folk. Levi, he didn't know too much. You see, he wasn't trained in a theological seminary. He was a tax gatherer. He was a rascal, by the way. But when he got saved, that is, when he came to the Lord Jesus, he did what he could do. He was a rich publican. He made a dinner. And he invited all of the other rascals in so they could get saved. That's another way, friends, that you can get people. I rejoice in the number of folk we have that give out our little circular about this program. It gives the log. And one lady, she circles the station in that area, and she sends them out everywhere. That's the way you do. You invite them in for dinner, the spiritual dinner that we have, and you invite them in that way. May I say to you, my, this is a rich section. Now we find here the scribes and Pharisees are not going to keep their mouth shut much longer, and so they come to him. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Now they ask that question, and our Lord has a good answer for it. Our Lord protects his own. Jesus did the answering. Jesus answering said unto them, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a very wonderful answer, by the way. The answer is simply this. Why did the Lord Jesus call publicans and sinners and eat with them? It was true that that's what he did. And the explanation is surely simple. He was a great physician, and you don't go around healing well, people. He was healing the sickness of sin. And he came to minister to them. The gospel is really for those who recognize their need. There are some people today that are too good to be saved. Did you know that? That is, they think they are. I want to speak very frankly. If you recognize that you have a need, then the gospel's for you. Christ can save you, and he will save you. And if you're self-sufficient, you recognize no need. May I say to you, just go on your self-chosen pathway. It'll lead you to destruction. The message is not for you. I'm very sorry. I wish I had a message for you, but I don't have a message for folks like that. And the disciples of John also were present, and they asked a question about fasting. And they were interested because the disciples of Jesus were having a good time. 
And our Lord answered them also. He said of them, Can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom's with them? But the days will come. The bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. We ought to have a good time today, but I do think fasting is beneficial today. I think that you and I need to recognize that our Lord is absent, and we're in a world that's rejected Him. But our business is still to get the Word out. Everything in this chapter is toward one direction. Do you notice that? Now he has the parables of the garment and the bottles. Now, actually, this is the first parable we've come to in the gospel. He spake also a parable unto them, No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also, having drunk old wine, straightway desireth new, for he saith, The old is better. You see, the natural man likes the old wine, he likes the old ways, likes the old religion. But the important thing is we need to recognize our Lord brought something new, and that's the gospel. And he didn't come into the world to do any patching of the old garment. That is, he didn't come to intend to patch up the law. He came to pay the penalty of sin on the cross, and he did more than that. He rose from the dead, and now he places his robe of righteousness, and he gives the new wine of the gospel. But it must be placed in a new wine cast, not in the old one of the law. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled today with the Holy Spirit. That's the message that he gives out today. And he came to give you something new. He came to save you by faith in him. You see, this whole chapter points in one direction. It's moving in one direction. It's to present the glorious gospel of Christ in as many ways as is possible that men might hear and have an opportunity to choose whether they'll accept Christ or reject him. And that's up to you. But he's still putting new wine in new bottles, and he's still giving new garments and not patching up the old one. Have you accepted him and received him today? Now today, friends, we come to this very remarkable sixth chapter of Luke. And the first part of it, of course, is almost like the other synoptic gospels. That is what we have in Matthew and Mark. We have, for instance, this instance of Christ on the Sabbath day. And this, of course, is where the enemy broke with him. From this time on, they attempted to kill him because of his attitude and his action relative to the Sabbath day. And we have the incident of the Sabbath day out in the fields where his own plucked corn and rubbed it in their hands. And they call that thrashing grain on the Sabbath day. Well, they didn't take in consideration these men were hungry, that they were following him, and it cost them something to follow him. Then we have the incident of the Sabbath day in the synagogue, because they put a man there with a withered hand. He was planted there 
you may be sure. And they really gave him a wonderful compliment. They believed he'd heal him. And you know something? He healed him. <laughs> they were right about that. That's one time the enemy was exactly right. Our Lord healed him. And they used that as an occasion to accuse him. They said, you've done this on the Sabbath day. And believe me, we're told, verse 11, and they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. And Matthew says they plotted his death from that moment on. Now we come to a section of the Gospel of Luke that actually, although my Schofield Reference Bible says that you find it in Matthew and you find it in Mark, and you find also the Sermon on the Mount, beginning here with verse 20, you find that in Matthew. And I totally disagree with that. This is all brand new. And I'll tell you why when we get to it. But what we have here are the twelve now chosen as apostles. I mentioned, I think, just about two days ago that what we had was the fact that he got introduced to the apostles when he went to Jerusalem, that is, some of them. And then later on, he walked by the Sea of Galilee, and he called those men. And they went back to fishing. And he went by and called them again. And we saw at that time, and when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. That's Luke five eleven. Now they are with him. Now we come to the third stage, and he chooses 12 of these men who became his apostles. Out of the disciples, he chooses 12 as apostles. And we've had that before, by the way, in both Matthew and Mark. And I have a list of those that have gone out previously. I trust that you have them in your notes. And if you do not have them in your notes, why, that means that you ought to have them there. And we would suggest any new listeners to ask for the list of the apostles because it's important to have them. We have here now, and I'm going to read some of this. It came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. This is remarkable. He considered it important to pray all night to God. Why? Well, for the very simple reason that he was going to choose these 12 men. And even one of those turned out to be a traitor Another one of them denied him, but he turned out all right. And you have here the calling and choosing of the apostles, therefore. And he spent the entire night in prayer before making his choice. God's men are always chosen. Oh, they're candidates, to be sure. But you remember he said in the Gospel of John, "'You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you.'" That's been a great comfort to me. I was a teller in a bank when the Lord called me. I didn't have any idea of ever being a preacher. I always actually looked down on preachers. I never thought much of them. And he called me. And I've always felt good about it because if he called me, he's responsible. I didn't call him. He called me. That's wonderful. He says, you've not chosen me. I've chosen you. I love that. They tell me election is something fearful. It's great comfort if you understand what it really means. And the Lord found that it was essential and practical to spend the entire night in prayer before selecting the twelve apostles. And men for God's work ought to be chosen 
on the basis of much prayer. Be sure they're God's chosen. The robe of Elijah did not fall accidentally on Elisha. It fell providentially. And the present-day procedure of the church is far from his standard. We follow our feelings. We consult our own selfish desires. And we use human measuring rods rather than his. And we find that he chose these 12 men. I'm not go through the list. We've been through that before. Verse 17, he came down with them and stood in the plain. Probably I ought to read quite a bit of this, and I'll continue to read beginning here, verse 17. He came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. The whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Notice multitudes were healed, friends. Literally thousands of people were healed. It's quite interesting to me, with all of the fall to roll that we've had in Southern California for 20 years, while I was pastor of the Church of the Open Door, I offered $100 to anyone who would come forward and prove that they had been healed by a faith healer. And may I say to you, I've had several that came down through the years, not necessarily to ask for it. Most of them felt sorry for me. They just wanted to prove to me they'd been healed. And did you know there was not a one out of the list? Never had a one. You'd think one would have been able to prove something, and I very frankly thought we might get a psychological healing out of the list, but we didn't get any. The very interesting thing is that in our Lord's day, there were literally thousands of people that had actually, literally, really been healed, and there was none of the hocus-pocus, acrocadabra that went on about it. No healing lines. No business of slapping this one and patting this one and having them fall backwards and forwards or upside down or stand on their head. They just didn't have to do anything. Our Lord even heal them at a distance. I wish some of these modern healers would start healing them at a distance. That'd be pretty good, too, by the way. They could empty the hospitals if they could do that. May I say to you, our Lord in his day... He did it, my friends, and did it actually. And Dr. Luke records it. And I, of course, always ask for the doctor's statement. That was interesting, the different ones that called for it. One man, he was insistent that he should have the $100. And I asked him, well, bring forth your proof. You know what his proof was? His mother had been healed about, oh, I guess 50 years before that, way back in Indiana. And I said, well, was there a doctor that examined her before and afterward? And he said, yes. Well, I said, let's get the statement of the doctor. And the doctor had been dead nearly 50 years himself. May I say to you, friends, our Lord didn't heal like that. They were genuine healings. They actually took place. Now, don't tell me I don't believe in divine healing. I believe in divine healing, but take it to the great physician. I find out that he's the best doctor that there is. And he doesn't send a bill to you 
by the way. And you don't have to be on Medicare to get him to take your case. Now we come to the so-called Sermon on the Mount. And I've already shown that it's not the Sermon on the Mount because I read in verse 17, he came down with them and stood in the plain. And if you want to give the sermon a name because of the geographical location, then you can call the one in Luke the Sermon on the Plain, and that's what it is. The similarity to Matthew, of course, indicates that he gave his teachings again and again. We do not need a harmony of the Gospels so much as we need a contrast of the Gospels. And I think this sermon so-called on the mount or on the plain reveals the fact that our Lord gave it many, many times. Now, the remarkable thing about this sermon in Luke is not its similarities, but its dissimilarities, not the fact that it's like the other, but that there are omissions and there are certain inclusions and there are blessings and woes and there are beatitudes and judgments and the reception of God's prophet by man here in the attitude. You have here things that were omitted from the other and things that were included in the other and are omitted here. And I want to begin reading it, and we'll notice it as we go along. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, somebody says, well, that's just like the other, is it not? Well, yes, it is. As I say, I think he repeated again and again the so-called Sermon on the Mount. He gave it in many places. You don't have to harmonize this with the one on the Mount. It's just that he gave the same teachings, gave it in maybe a little different form. And you'll notice this is an entirely different form here. He says, "'Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh.'" And then, "'Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake.'" And then he has something here that's quite interesting at verse 23. "'Rejoice ye... That day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner did their fathers under the prophets. Now, let's look at that for just a moment. You have here the reception of God's prophet by man, the attitude toward him. The true prophet will speak for God, and he's persecuted. The false prophet misrepresents God, but he's patronized by man and the result of the prophet's message. The world's attitude toward the Word is its attitude toward God, by the way. The prophet must have the far-off vision. He must have faith in God. He must have quite confidence, which looks beyond the things which are seen to the things which are eternal. And this is what keeps a man, of course, true to God. Now, again, let me read verse 23. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner did their fathers under the prophets. And here you have the poor, hungry, they weep, they are hated, they're outcasts, they're reproached, they're called evil. And 
All you have to do is to look back in the Old Testament to see the truth of this. And I think the same is true today, by the way. The man who preaches the Word of God is going to have a rough time. And if he's not having a rough time, something's wrong. And the false prophets, they were rich. They had plenty to eat. They could laugh. They were a good fellow. Listen to him. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Now, we find that the false prophet, he's patronized by the world. And if he'll say the right thing, they'll pay him well. But the Lord Jesus makes it very clear he needn't expect God to pay him. He may become popular with the world, but he'll be notorious with God. He may have fun here, but he'll cause heaven to weep. He may be well-fed, but he's got a starved soul. And very little is said today, as our Lord did, about the godless rich. A great deal is said about that in Scripture. And I want you to notice what he says here. But woe unto you that are rich. And verse 25, Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall be hungry. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you, and all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say unto you, which here love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them that despitefully use you. Now, very little, as we've said, is made of the godless rich today. The underworld is always used as an example of godlessness. You've got to go down and get that poor criminal that stole $25, or he stole a suit of clothes, or he picked up a $50 ring somewhere. It seems to be that the godless rich are far more dangerous than the godless poor. You see, they give a glamour to godlessness. And I feel today there's more hypocrisy among the rich than they are among any group. They'll pay a false prophet in their church, and they own the church, and they'll own the prophet. No rich church today has the reputation of being an evangelical church. They'll not have a man who preaches the gospel. There may be a few exceptions to this, but I don't know them. I've never heard of They'll not have a man who preaches the gospel in New York City there is a church that's called by the name of a rich man. And they've never had a gospel preacher there because he won't have a gospel preacher there. A gospel preacher would condemn him. And James has a great deal to say, Go to now, ye rich man. I wonder when a great many Christians in this country are going to wake up to the fact that these rich politicians today are throwing crumbs from their table down to the poor today. They're not interested in the poor. They're not interested in the question of civil rights either. They want to be able to keep their riches and enjoy them in selfishness, and they're willing to give a few crumbs to the poor. The very interesting thing is that in civil rights, you will notice that they're not interested in having different colored folk live in their community. <laughs> they know they're not able to. They want them to live in your community and mine. And by the way, I don't mind if they do. <laughs> I'm more concerned not about the color of the skin, but the color of the heart. 
Has a man's heart been washed in the blood of Christ? And if he has, he's my brother. I'm going to be living with him for eternity, and I just better start learning to live with him now. His heart may be as black as ink and his skin white as snow, and he's not my brother. I'm sorry to have to say that, friends, but he's not my brother. Somebody says, well, what you're saying sounds revolutionary. Sure is. That's what Jesus said, friends. There are those today that tell me they're following Jesus. They don't dare follow him. They did, they'd be in trouble. You read what he has to say here, and believe me, my friend, it will take the cloak of hypocrisy and peel off the skin today of any man. The hypocrisy of those who say they live by the Sermon on the Mount. How about the Sermon on the Plain? Try it on for size and find out. The minister of the church seeking popularity today dares not mention sin. Some use the gyration of psychoanalysis to explain away the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's called a relic of a theological jungle. It's not a crime against God. Today, they're afraid to say God hates sin. Jehovah's a man of war. And you can't just compliment the ego and pat the pride and smile upon sin and put cold cream on the cancer of sin today. You can't write the prescription and philosophy today and have it filled in the pleasures of the world. The only place you can go is to the foot of the cross. He's not giving you a massage when you come to Jesus, my friend, that'll tickle your funny bone. He performs an operation and makes you a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's the message that you have here in the so-called Sermon on the Plain. It goes along with the Sermon on the Mount. And he gave this message many, many times. But have you noticed that this that I'm giving today isn't very popular? And he concluded it by giving that that you find in the Sermon on the Mount, the parable of the house built on the rock. The house that was built on the rock, it stood. The house that was built on the sand, it was absolutely washed away. But the house on the rock stood. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I'll show you to whom he's like. He's like a man which built a house, dig deep, laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood rose, the stream beat vehemently upon the house, could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth doeth not is like a man without a foundation, built a house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell the ruin of that house was great. Now, will you hear me very carefully? I'll tell you what this does for me as I read this particular passage here. It reveals to me that I'm a sinner before God, and it takes off the skin. And that today is the thing that the mob is afraid of today. The Lord Jesus, in giving this, reveals to me that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. And there is a rock, though, on which I can build, and that rock is Christ. Paul said, No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, and that is Jesus Christ. Now we come here to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and you'll notice that this first incident, the centurion, 
who had a servant that our Lord healed from a distance. We had that, you remember, back in the 8th chapter of Matthew. And if you'll forgive me, I'll not go into any detail concerning this as I spent a great deal of time with it in Matthew. But now at verse 11, I come to that which only Dr. Luke records, and that is a restoration to life, or as we would call it, resurrection. Actually and technically, the instances that are recorded of Jesus raising people from the dead is not the resurrection as we should think of it. All he did was restore them back to this life in the old body. Tradition says that when he raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus asked him if he'd have to die again, and our Lord told him he would, and this man never smiled from that day on. Well, I imagine to go through that door of death one time, any person thinks that would be enough. But when the resurrection takes place, and up to the day only one person has been raised from the dead in a glorified body, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the firstfruits of them that sleep. And one of these days, why the dead in Christ and those of us that are alive, if he comes in our lifetime, we'll be changed. And that is, we'll be changed into a resurrected body, a glorified body, and we'll all be caught up to be with him. Now, that's a body that'll never die. But these are instances, and they are illustrations of resurrection, which are all important, because they illustrate what real resurrection will be. So let me read this. It came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. Now this is a rather unusual case, as you can see. The death of this young man was indeed sad. He was the only son of a widowed mother. And that made it doubly tragic. And our Lord now meets this funeral. Someone has said that he broke up every funeral that he met. I'm of the opinion that he actually raised more people from the dead than the three that are recorded in Scripture. And those three are illustrative, as it's quite evident. One's a little girl, 12 years of age, right between childhood and teenage. Then there's this young man in the full vigor of youth. And then we have Lazarus, who was a senior citizen, so that you have the three great classifications of mankind. They're all restored to life. Now, will you notice this? And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. You see, what he's going to do is for the sake of this lonely mother. And this one is recorded for that very purpose. He came and touched the bier, that is, the casket. And they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. 
Now, he always used the same method in raising folk from the dead. He spoke directly to them. And one of these days, he's coming with a shout, a voice of the archangel. His voice will be like the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and it's his voice that's like a trumpet. And that one solo voice will call the dead in Christ back from the dead. He used always the same method in restoring to life. Now, he didn't use the same method in other miracles. For instance, one time when he opened the eyes of a blind person, why, he just spoke to him. Another time, he touched his eyes. And on another occasion, you'll recall, he anointed them and then sent him down to wash in the pool of Bethesda. So that there were three different methods that were used. I could well understand that those three men would get together And if they did, they would have started three different denominations. One man would have said, all he has to do is just speak to you. Only believe, that's all. Just only believe, and that's all that's necessary, and you've got to come that way. And he went away singing, only believe. Well, then the other fellow said, wait a minute. He said, no, you've got to have him touch you. He touched me. And he went away singing the touch of his hand on mine. He believed in having an experience, you see. You've got to have an experience. And that third man, now he's the one that really had an argument. He said, wait a minute, both of you are wrong. You've got to go down and wash. And he went away singing, shall we gather at the river? And believe me, these three would have gone out. Each one started a denomination. You say, that's silly. I won't agree with you. It is silly. But that's what men have done since then, arguing about the little points, the fine points, and the points that are actually not essential. The important thing is to have had contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he raised the dead, he used the same method. He spoke to them. And he that was dead, sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. That's verse 15. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea, throughout all the region round about, and the disciples of John showed him of all these things. Now, it was at this juncture that John sent his disciples to the Lord Jesus to ask a few questions, because John was puzzled. Verse 19 of the seventh of Luke, and I'm reading that now, "...and John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another?" And the men were come unto him. They said, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Well, the very interesting thing is that this man, John the Baptist, we've had him before us in both Matthew and Mark. And let me just add another word concerning him. His dress was quite picturesque and unusual. There are those today who adopt a peculiar dress 
We're living in a day when a great emphasis is put upon a certain manner of dressing, wearing certain clothes, or wearing your hair. These things have become very important in our day. And some folk, they feel like that if you just do that, that you become very religious. Well, that may just indicate one thing, that you're a religious crank or a religious nut to dress in an unusual way. May I say to you that it is true that John used an unusual dress, but that's not what made John unusual. It was not his dress. It was his message and his ministry. He was called of God. And you better be sure you're called of God if you're going to try wearing a religious garb. Many think that by adopting the outward trappings of Christianity, they'll be a Christian today. I talked just this morning to a young lady, and I asked her, because she had asked me several questions, wanted to know who I was and what I was doing. I was out in front of our radio headquarters, and she's asking me the question. says, well, what do you do? And I told her I was a minister. And I said, now you've asked me a question. I'd like to ask you a question. What do you have to do to be a Christian? She began to tell about, well, she felt you ought to be good to your neighbor, and you ought to not criticize him, or you ought not to be harsh, and you ought to be very friendly. And, oh, my, she had quite a list. And I said, then, all you think, then, is to be a Christian is just something you do on the outside. You can put up a front. Oh, no, she said, I think it's more than that. And it took me a long time to get to the point and tell her that it was a personal relationship to Christ. And it's more than trying to imitate Christ or to have a certain dress or to wear a certain garb, that you must be born again. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. You see, to be a Christian means to have an experience with Christ. And John actually seems just a little misplaced here in the New Testament. He doesn't belong in the New Testament at all. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he's an Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. And he's the bridge over the yawning chasm between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the last of the illustrious line of Old Testament prophets. And it had such notables as Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Christ later told that generation, you remember, that they build tombs of the prophets, but that year the children of them which kill the prophet. And they prove themselves genuine children having inherited the nature of their fathers, because John was right then in prison and his voice was soon to be silence and death. Now we find him in prison, and there was doubt that it captivated his mind. There are those that try to give a psychological explanation for John's question, which is rather amusing. They say he was in prison, he was depressed, he was discouraged, he was dejected, and he got the blues. Well, the only thing wrong with that is that it's just not right. I don't believe a word of that explanation. John had announced the kingdom, and he had renounced the nation, and he had pronounced the coming of the king. And John was just a highway builder for the king. 
He said mountains will be brought low and valleys exalted. And when the Messiah appeared, John identified him. And he says, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His fan is in his hand. He'll thoroughly purge the floor, and he'll gather his wheat into his garner, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, regardless of your interpretation, you must agree that strong language. John was not expecting a Sunday school picnic. John was expecting Christ to establish the kingdom in all of its glory and power. And it just hadn't come about that way. And so he sent his disciples to ask the question, Are you the one? Are we looking for another? And you notice how the Lord Jesus received the messengers of John. He received them cordially, but he kept them waiting. Now, will you notice verse 21? And at that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Now, he did all of this in the presence of those disciples and kept them waiting. Why? Well, for a reason. Verse 22, Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way. Tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me." In other words, he says, you go back and tell John that what you've seen is the fulfillment of prophecy concerning the Messiah. And if you want to check that, go to the 35th of Isaiah, where it says that the lame will leap and the blind will have their eyes open. And he says, you go back and tell him you've seen the credentials of the Messiah. That's very important. I think that one of the most illuminating statements from the lips of our Lord is, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. He asks for our faith when we cannot understand, friends. And he says, You go back and tell John, I'm not moving as fast as he'd like for me to. Actually, he's fulfilled his mission, and I have now presented my credentials. But in the presence of intellectual difficulties... He says to John, you believe. And he says that to you and me today. He asks us to trust him. And while the intelligentsia is still waiting for the interpretation, he keeps them waiting while he goes to those whose hearts are open. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us that are saved it's the power of God. You know, your doubts are not a sign you're smart. They're a sign that you're very foolish. And it's a sign you don't know everything. It's a sign that you belong to a group which are perishing. The learned professors sit in swivel chairs in dusty and musty libraries far removed from life and human need, and they write about the intellectual difficulties of accepting the Bible and the deity of Christ and the blood redemption. And those same professors, when they had a little trouble on campus, didn't know how to solve that. Since they can't handle modern problems, I don't know whether they know very much about what took place 1,900 years ago. I'll still go along with the Word of God. While five men who purport to be atheists 
You remember back in World War II, they get in a rubber raft in the middle of the Pacific, and they spent 20 days out on the face of the water, and they were brought face to face with God. And it was amazing. Their intellectual difficulties evaporated, and not one of them got off of that raft after 20 days an atheist. I wish I could put some of these professors out in a raft on the Pacific. I think that would be better than giving them a Ph.D. degree. My friend, that's a tremendous thing that took place, you see. Now, let's look a little farther, John, here. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began, the Lord Jesus, to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out under the wilderness for to see a reed shaken with the wind? Well, he wasn't a reed shaken with the wind. John was a wind-shaken reeds. But what went ye out for to see, a man clothed in soft raiment? Not John. He was rugged. He was rough, if you please. Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. That's the reason David wasn't so sure about Solomon, because Solomon was a pantywaist raised in the women's court and wore nice little... Prince Albert clothes, little Lord Fauntleroy. And David, when he was dying, he actually didn't want to make him king, but he was God's choice. And David said to him, be a man. And that was pretty hard for Solomon to do, by the way. But what went ye out for to see? Verse 26, now, a prophet. Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is he of whom... It is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, and shall prepare thy way before thee. You see, this is the fulfillment of Malachi, the third chapter. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. Now, notice, though, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling one to another and saying, We've piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We've mourned to you, and ye have not wept. In other words, they were like a bunch of spoiled brats. And that's the way a lot of folk are today, friends. I've been a pastor for many, many years, 30-some-odd years. And a great deal of that time was spent as wet nurse burping spiritual babies. And that's what these religious rulers were in that day. They were a bunch of spiritual babies. They were like little children. Our Lord said, play in the marketplace. And somebody says, let's play wedding. And they said, no, we don't like play wedding. That's too jolly. And then somebody else said, well, then let's play funeral. And they said, no, that's too sad. In other words, they were really spoiled brats. That's what they were. And our Lord said, that's exactly what that religious generation was. And I'm not sure but what this is an accurate picture of the average church today, filled with a bunch of spoiled babies. That's what they are. Somebody says... Preacher, you can say that now that you retired and got out of the ministry. I want to tell you something. I sure can say it now. 
I feel sorry for some ministers today. I thank God that in my ministry, he never put me in a position where I was subject to man. I was always free to declare the Word of God as I saw it. And somebody said to me, why don't you preach this or why don't you preach that? Is it because that you're afraid of the members, afraid of this board, afraid of that? No, my friend, I didn't preach it because I don't follow your idea either. I preach what I believe is the Word of God. And I want to say this to you when you're listening to this poor preacher. I may have it wrong, but I have it the way that I believe that it is. And that is a great satisfaction to me today. John the Baptist, he said, came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, he hath a demon. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. You see, some people say, I don't like that preacher. He's too intellectual. And he just stands up there with a monotone. And somebody else says, or the same party says, and I don't like so-and-so. He gets up there and he pounds the pulpit and he yells at the top of his voice. You know what the problem is? It's not with these two types of preachers. The problem is with a spoiled baby. That's what our Lord said in his day. I think you can make application to the present hour. Now we come to an incident that only Dr. Luke records, and he has many of these. This is one of those notable occasions when the Lord Jesus went out to dinner. And my friends, when he went out to dinner, it was never a dull affair. In fact, it was rather exciting to be at a dinner where our Lord attended. I think that's one of the things about heaven. A great many people think it's going to be a pretty dull place My friend, it's going to be the most exciting, thrilling place you've ever been to. I can't wait to get there, but I'd like to wait. I'm in no hurry because I'm going to get there ultimately. And since I won't be coming this way through this world again, I've just asked the Lord, let me just stick around here as long as I possibly can because I like it, frankly. I love getting the Word of God out, and He has blessed the ministry. Pray for us. But now notice this incident. Verse 36, you remember he was denouncing these Pharisees. They were like spoiled brats. We saw that last time. Verse 36, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Now, personally, I do not believe that this could be considered a friendly invitation. Now, I mean by that, I don't think the man that invited him to dinner invited him because he considered him a friend and wanted to have him. He invited him in order that he might spy on him and find something wrong with him. Now, while he was there, this is what happened. Behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner. Believe me, it's very clear what she is, is it not? She was a sinner. She'd change, though, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat. And, of course, in that day, they reclined. And I'd like to put it like that. When she knew that Jesus is reclining at meat, 
in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now, the picture is something like this. In that day, if you had guests in, your neighbors had a perfect right to come in and stand along the wall or sit on their haunches and look and see who you had invited for dinner and to see what you were feeding them. Now, they weren't there to comment, but they were just there to look. Now, this woman came in, and she took her place back of the Lord Jesus. And the picture would be something like this. He's reclining on a couch. His feet are stuck out in the back, and that's where she's standing. And he's reclining, leaning on his arm, and able to talk across the table there to his host. Now, this is the picture. This woman's got an alabaster box of ointment, and she wants to use it. And she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. Why? Because she'd been forgiven her sins. And she began to wet his feet with tears. And she did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, that woman just stood there during the meal, didn't say a word, but she'd been forgiven. And it was so wonderful for her sinner to be forgiven. Tears came down, and they began to drop on the feet of Jesus, and she got that ointment out because she wanted to use it, and she put that on his feet and wiped his feet with the hairs of her head. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she's a sinner. You know, the interesting thing is that this old Pharisee here, he wouldn't speak to her on the street. He might do business with her after dark. Nobody's looking. But he wouldn't speak to her on the street. In fact, the matter is, this old Pharisee, he just wouldn't have anything in the world to do with her. And when he saw the Lord Jesus there eating and this woman wiping his feet and kissing his feet and having put the ointment on, he said, he must not be a prophet. Because if he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman she was and he'd have nothing to do with her. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Oh, this is good, friends. This is good. He says, Simon, I want to talk to you. (laughs) And he said, Master, say on. We're going to have a very interesting conversation now, friends. Now, will you notice? He gives him a story. It's a parable. And this is one of those delightful parables that Dr. Luke gives. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he, the word frankly I don't think should be here, he says, he forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? That's a pretty simple story, and I think even this old Pharisee could answer it. And he did. Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most, and he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. That's the story. Isn't that a delightful parable? And you can already see the direction our Lord's going. And he turned to the woman, and he said unto Simon. And you can see our Lord now. He's reclining. For the first time, he's noticed the woman. He hadn't paid a bit of attention to her. But now he turns. 
and he looks at her, and while he's looking at her, he says to Simon, Simon's over on the other side of him, he says, "'Seest thou this woman?' In other words, Simon said, "'I don't think he knows who that woman is.'" If he knew who she was, he wouldn't permit that. He wouldn't permit her to anoint his feet with that ointment. Now our Lord says to him, "'Simon, do you see her? Do you really know this woman? Seest thou this woman?' Now, our Lord really rubs this man the wrong way. And this is the reason that I believe that our Lord was invited, not as a friendly gesture, but to spy upon him. Listen to him now. He says, Simon, seest thou this woman? Take a look at her. You think you see her, you don't see her at all. I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Now, may I say to you, friends, he's saying to this man, Simon the Pharisee, he said, listen, you don't even exercise the common courtesies of the day. That's the tragic thing about a lot of Christians today. They ought to read Emily Post. They don't even have good manners. And our Lord says to this man, you don't even have good manners. If you'd been the proper kind of a host, you'd have been there to wash my feet. You'd have been there to anointed them. You'd have been there to anoint in my head and give me a kiss. And that was the custom in that day. Now, will you notice what he says to him? And I tell you, friends, this is a stinger. This will blanch your soul. I tell you, I wish I could have been present for this dinner. It wasn't dull. It wasn't dull like a lot of after-dinner speakers. Our Lord was tops as an after-dinner speaker. Listen to him here. He says, Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. This poor woman from the street came in. She knew there's no hope for her, no chance. And now our Lord's forgiven her. She wants forgiveness, and the God of heaven is there and he's forgiven her. And he said to this old Pharisee, he said, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. And you've answered your question because you said that the one that owed most would naturally be the one that would love him most. Well, she's been forgiven a whole lot. She's a greater sinner than you are. But you see, you, because you don't think you are a sinner... You haven't even asked for forgiveness. That old Pharisee wasn't forgiven. May I say to your friends, this is something that'll blanch your soul, but will you listen to it? Our Lord said to this old hypocritical Pharisee, this religious ruler, he said to him, he says, in the light of heaven and by God's standard and on the basis of sins forgiven, this woman is 10,000 times better than you are. 
this woman from the street, a prostitute who has come and asked for forgiveness, has been saved. But you, a church member, you who think that you are all right, you are lost. (laughs) My friends, I say to you that this is very pertinent for today. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? You know, it was a thrilling experience to be at the dinner there that day. And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. And she didn't have good works, but she believed in him. She trusted him. She asked for forgiveness. My friends, that's the important thing. What a tremendous story This is what we have here.